This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for May 6, 2012. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. The message is by Father Ron Baird. So, I mean, I'm from the South, and I've lived here for 20 years now. So where I live is in Ohio, but I'm from Kentucky. And, and it's a culture. I mean, it's a, it's a whole way of looking at life that, that kind of permeates who you are. I mean, it's, your, it's where your rootedness is. You know, what you expect of people, what your worldview is all formed by where you're from. And, and there are differences in different parts of this country and even you know, greater differences if you're in different parts of the world. So where you're from matters. That's really what Jesus is talking about in today's gospel lesson when he talks about abiding. You know, it's interesting because in the Gospels, we frequently hear that question about where are you from? Remember, that was what Pilate asked Jesus is where are you from? And if you remember, the reason why I asked him that was because he was talking to him about are you the king of the Jews? And he says, well, you say that I am. And he says, you know, and then it goes on to say, if I was the king of the Jews, I would have an army and they would fight. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Because see, where Jesus is from is from God. That's what his rootedness is. And for us to have eternal life, we have to change our rootedness, our abiding place, if you will. We don't use the word abide much anymore. I mean, you imagine walking up to somebody and saying, tell me, where do you abide? They'd probably go, what? We do know that an abode is a home, I guess, but we really don't use that word abide much. But it's about what is your, where are you rooted who are you really at the core of your being? And what Jesus is telling us is that if we would have eternal life, then we have to be rooted in God. And, and to do that, he begins to talk about the vine and the branches. He says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Now, here's the problem for us today. We aren't naturally a part of the vine that is God. You know, we, we aren't part of God automatically. We don't get to be immortal automatically. You know, we have to be grafted into the vine because otherwise we're mortal and we would simply die like everything else. And it is possible to graft plants together. A sort. Have you ever heard of a pear apple tree? Because you can graft a branch into another tree. Do you know how you do that, though? <laughs> Depends on who you are, but... Uh, you basically take a sharp knife and you cut into the branch and you cut out part of it because you're going to make a, a wedge thing to stick the branch into. And so the, the tree, the, the vine in this case, would have to give up part of itself, wouldn't it? For the, something to be grafted into it. And even more so, though, you can't just pluck a branch off of something else and just stick it in there. I mean, that won't work. What do you think you have to do to it? Yeah, you have to trim it down. You have to make sure that all the tissue, the woody tissue that's there, is very fresh so that it can begin to make the attachments just like the tree would if it was its own branch. But you can't even just do that, interestingly enough, because if you did all that and trimmed it down and stuck it in there, you know what would happen? It would fall out or die. So you have to dress it, don't you? I mean, you have to bandage it up 
and seal it. And then you have to change that because if, if an, you know, some sort of uh, bacteria or something got mold got under there, it would kill it still. I mean, it's a lot of work to graft something into something else. It doesn't come naturally and it doesn't come without cost, both to the, the vine and to the branches. It tells us a lot about our relationship with God, that if we're going to be in this kind of immortal relationship with God, it's cost God, and, and we hear a lot about that. You know, he died on a cross and things, but, but it also is going to cost us. Now, why would you bother to graft any plant into another one? Hmm? Make something new, but what do you want to happen? Hey, you want it to bear fruit, don't you? I mean, you want, want it to grow and, and bear fruit. If it didn't bear fruit, would you feel like you did that it was worthwhile? You kind of waste your time, didn't you? And God's the same way. Now, to get it to bear fruit, though, all that you've done so far, even if the grafting begins to take, you still have to do more. Do you know what that is? You have to feed it. You have to prune it back because it can't sustain the entire branch. So everything that it is known as its life, part of that's going to have to go away in order for it to grow again. Because if you just use that one part of it, then I mean, if you just if you just put the whole thing in, the nutrients would never get up to the top, and the top part would die. And when it dies, it becomes infectious and, and dies all the way down. Just like in our bodies, if we have dead tissue inside of us, you have to have it taken out. You'll die. I mean, it'll kill you. So you have to have it removed. And so it's the same thing with the branch. It has to be pruned back. And what would you do with a branch that you were trying to graft that didn't work? I mean, the branch, it never took, never bore any fruit, just never, just was sucking up the nutrients from the, from the trunk. I mean, would you want it to keep sucking up the nutrients? That'd be kind of a waste, wouldn't it? You'd say, I think I better get another one that's going to bear fruit. As again. Well, it's the same with us. God wants us to bear fruit for his kingdom. That's why he's willing to sacrifice himself and graft us into the vine that is his son so that we can have immortal life. And it's going to cost us some. We're going to be pruned. We're going to be trimmed. Sometimes it's going to be painful. But sometimes we can grow into incredible you know, opportunities that we never could have asked for or imagined. And that leads us to the epistle today, which is also from John. It's the first letter of John, and he's writing. And it, the first John we've been reading through Easter, it's a great book. I mean, it's a book about sin and love. How much better can you get than that? I mean, you know, this would be like a TV miniseries, when it's sin and love. I mean, that would fly. And he's been talking about sin, but now he's turning his attention to love. And, and if you heard, when you heard Todd reading it, did you see how many times love was said in there? I mean, it's almost like a Beatles song. Love, love, love. <laughs> and every single time he's using that word, he uses a particular word to describe love. Now, we're at a disadvantage in English. We only have one word for love. I mean, it's just love. All, you know, so if you say, I love you to your... Um, to your um, fiance, and then you turn around and you say, I love you to your kids. Are you saying the same thing? Hopefully not. 
Or if you say, I love you to your friend, are you saying the same thing? We mean different things, but we don't have any way of differentiating it in the word itself. In Greek, they do. They have different words for it. And the kind of love that John is talking about here is agape, is the Greek word for it. And it means self-giving love. It's not romantic love or erotic love. It's not even you know, like brotherly love or caring love that you might have for a friend. It's agape love. And, and there's a one big difference between the other kinds of love and this kind of love. This kind of love, agape love, has absolutely nothing to do with how you feel. You know that? Nothing to do with how you feel whatsoever. It has to do with what you do. Now, we have some experience in our own lives of, about what agape love is like. If you've ever had kids or a pet, you know what it's like to love something and want to give and take care of it, but not really be very happy with it. I mean, because they're annoying. If you've ever had a spouse, you probably know what that's like. If you've been married very long, I mean, it can be really... No, it doesn't take... Well, some longer than others. It depends how good they are at it. But, but I mean... Real love, deep love, is agape love. What we call love, the love boat kind of love, is actually a very superficial level of love because it's always based on how we feel. I mean, if you think about it, even our friendships are like that. What do you do if a friend um, does something that really hurts you? Say a friend at work, nobody really close to you or anything. Do you stay buddies and act like there's no big deal? Or, But most of the time, we just kind of go, well, it's not worth putting that much effort into, don't we? Because I don't feel. I don't. Because a lot of our friendships are based on the fact that we have a lot in common. We want to be together. You know, we enjoy doing stuff. And if that gets to be where that's not much fun anymore, we don't want to go be with them, do we? You know, love is different. A lot of times when I have people who come to me and they, they, they say they want to get married, and I go, why do you want to get married? And they say, because we're in love. And I always say, well, that's good, but you'll get over that. What are you going to do then? Um, and it's good that they get over it because if you think about it, if everybody was in love for the rest of their life, we'd all be living in a tree or in a cave somewhere because nobody would ever get anything done. I mean, we'd all be making goo-goo eyes at each other constantly. But you see, that kind of love isn't the kind of love that lasts. Real love is the kind of love when your husband's been a jerk all day and you make him dinner anyway. You may put it down in front of him and slam the plate on the table, but he still gets the dinner, doesn't he? It's the kind of love that when your kid does something really bad and you're really upset with them, they tear up your favorite whatever, that if they get in trouble and they fall down and they hurt themselves, you go running to help them anyway. You know, if your dog messes in the house and then, you know, the door, somebody comes in, the door opens, the dog runs off because you've been screaming at it for 15 minutes um, and you realize the dog's headed for the street, you go after it, don't you? That's self-giving love. We do have some knowledge of it. We have some experience of it. But all too often, we don't think that that's love. But it is. It's actually a deep and abiding love. It's about where you're rooted. It's about doing things even though you don't feel like it. And so when John says that it is not that we loved God, but rather that he loved us, 
That's because what can you give to God? I mean, God doesn't need anything, does he? I mean, you can't sacrifice anything so God can have something because he's got everything he needs. But it's rather that he loved us. He gave himself for us so that we might live. That's really what it's all about. And if we say that we love one another, but we hate our brother and sister, he says, then we're liars. You ever think about that? We're liars. If we say that we love each other, but we hate our brother or sister, then we're liars. Because what we're really saying is that, well, I love God. I just don't like that person. I hate that person. But you can't do that because if that person is in Christ, if they're really a brother or sister, if they're grafted into the vine, that's sort of like saying to your husband, I love you, but I hate your kids. Wait a minute, they're your kids too. Not right now, they're yours. And you don't get to choose that way. You love even when you don't feel like it. Because love isn't about how you feel, it's about what you do. And that's really where the big crisis in our society about around marriage and relationships is, is that too many people are basing love on how they feel. And the day comes when you don't feel that way anymore. They don't base it on the commitment, on the willingness to sacrifice and to give to the other. And yet, if you've been married longer than a year, you've figured out that that's most of what goes on. We have to give of ourselves. We have to be willing to be pruned. You know, we have a sort of a running joke at my house. I've been being pruned for quite some time since I married Judy. I, I had a house full of furniture when I married Judy. I'm, I'm trying to think. There, there's only like three pieces of that furniture left in my house. Somehow all the rest of it is gone. <laughs> and, and she has plans for it, I think. Um, <laughs> so, it. She's kind about it. She didn't just chop it all off at once. I mean, she's a little bit at a time. Um, but I'm being pruned as it goes. That's what life is like in real loving relationships is you sacrifice. And I suspect that she could sa- tell you the things that she sacrifices for me. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't see them. I mean, we never see them, do we? I mean, it's, well, I'm perfect. Why would you sacrifice anything for me? I don't know. I'm good. We don't think that way. But in some ways, even that is healthy because if our focus is not on what am I getting, but rather what am I giving, the bond is stronger. That's why you cut off the branch if it doesn't bear fruit because all it's doing is getting. It's not doing any giving. And it doesn't work. And so if we would really love one another, if we would really be grafted into the body of Christ, into this vine, and become one with Christ so that we may live uh, forever with him, we have to realize that it's not going to be about what we get out of it. And the moment we turn it over to looking at what we get out of it, then we're lost because we missed the whole point. I don't think Jesus came to earth and died on a cross for our sins because of what he could get out of it. That wouldn't make much sense, would it? You know, our whole society has lost this concept of, of, of the self-giving. When I was young, it was much more normal. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was more so than it is now. And if you go back a long time ago when they were first settling the frontier, if, if you 
bought acreage out west somewhere and you moved out there to do a farm and you needed a barn, do you think you just went out with a, a you know an axe and a saw and just chopped down a tree and sawed all the lumber and made your own barn? What'd you do? Yeah, your neighbors came. They all came over. Everybody came. They do it in like in a day. They put up his barn. Because everybody, and when you say neighbors, when you're out west in farmland, that that's sort of not what we would consider neighbors because it's a long way. It might be everybody in a county might come because it would take that much. But they all did. Do you think they all didn't have anything to do that day? No, we were just sitting around on the front porch looking for something to do. We thought that'd be good. I doubt it. They gave up whatever they had to do to come do it. Even when I was young, as I was mentioned, when, when I was a kid, if the dryer broke down, my dad didn't go and just buy a new one. Y'all seen that commercial about, what is it, PC.com or something like that, where, where the, the college students sitting there, my computer is slow, what's the matter with it? It's old, let's go buy a new one. Now, the fakey part about that is at the end when he fixes it, he goes, oh, good, now I don't have to have a new one. I'm thinking, yeah, right, that happened. We still want the new one. But in those days when the dryer broke down, because I specifically remember our dryer breaking down and it didn't work at all. My dad couldn't buy doing any any money. Now, my dad was slightly more mechanically able than I am. And I'm mechanically able enough to be dangerous. Um, and so he would go and figure, uh, is this something I can fix or not? And But in this case, he didn't know what was right. It wasn't like just changing a belt on it or something. He just didn't know what to do with it. And so what do you think he did? Somebody said he kicked it. I said, well, yeah, I actually did. And then he, then he had a conversation with it that didn't seem to help very much. Um, so, but, and what, what do you think he did? And he started talking to people outside saying, do you know anything about dryers? I got this problem with this dryer. And, and, you know, one guy would go, well, I don't know a lot about them. I'll come look at it. Next thing you know, there are three or four guys in the basement you know, taking this dryer apart. And with a little bit of luck, one of them knew something about it. And they get it back together again. And we don't see the happening anymore, do we? I mean, I'm always astounded when I drive in neighborhoods and there's somebody's grass who hasn't been cut. And it's starting to get really high. Because I keep wondering, do these people not have neighbors? Um, I can remember there was a lady who lived a couple doors down from us who who had a serious illness, and she was unable to get out and cut her grass anymore, and the kids hadn't really gotten involved yet where they got a service come in and stuff. And so those of us in the neighborhood, we just took turns. We cut her gra- we cut our grass, and then we go cut her grass too. Yeah. Now, I guess you could say that was self-interest. We wanted the neighborhood to look nice. But doesn't anybody do that anymore? Or are we really so busy just pulling up into our driveway and closing the garage door and going into isolation that we've forgotten what it means to give? You see, real self-giving isn't just about when somebody asks. It's about looking out for the betterment of another one. You know, when Jesus came to the earth, he didn't wait for you to sin and then say, Lord, could you please come down and be crucified for me? He saw what was needed and he gave it anyway. If we are willing to live in that kind of love, then amazing things can start to happen. Because when we abide in him, we begin to become like him. 
once that branch is grafted into the tree, 10 years later, can you tell that there was a graft there? Like the rest of the tree, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't look much different at all. I mean, it looks like it had always been there. It looks like it grew from a shoot that way. That's what the goal is, is for us to look like we are part of God. And if we do, we will bear much fruit. And that fruit is something that we can see in ourselves and that others can see in us so we can know whether or not it's happening. There are things like love. John says, perfect love casts out fear. Do you, are you afraid of anything? Do you fear for your health, your finances, your you know, kids, you know, whatever, your relationships? I mean, name it. Because that's an indication that you haven't acquired that perfect love yet. Because if you've acquired perfect love, you aren't afraid of anything. That tells you, I need more pruning. I need more work. I need to graft myself more into the vine. I need to become more like Jesus. And the fruit that we bear is, is often called, times called the fruit of the Spirit. But there are things that are noticeable, things like joy. If people meet you, is that the first thing they think? She's just a joyous person. Just a lot of fun to be around. You know, is grumbling part of the fruit of the kingdom, you think? Probably not. You know, is backstabbing part of the kingdom? Betrayal? Nah, probably not. But love, joy, peace, a sense of calm and okayness because God is in control. I'm a branch, he's a vine, I'm going with him. You know, whichever way the tree bends, that's the way I'm bending too. That's how it works. Forbearance is another one. You know what forbearance means? Forbear with ants. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's um, actually 